I promised I wouldn't cry either, Linda, but I already started. I hadn't even spoke yet. <clears throat> you know, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It scared him to death. He wanted somebody to tell him what it meant. He looked at a confused people who were his prophets and his seers and all of the folks who were the smartest in the kingdom. He said, tell me what my dream meant. They said, tell me your dream. He said, that's not fair. They said, King, that's not fair. Well, your life depends on it, he said, to find out what my dream meant. And you remember Daniel's interpretation of that dream. There were these kingdoms of which Nebuchadnezzar was a part of one, and if there ever was a man that was arrogant, it was him. So why in the world would a dream make him scared? And what he saw were these kingdoms, the greatest kingdoms that the world has ever known. And at the end of his dream, he saw this stone, not cut with the hands of men, that crushed those kingdoms. And this is what Daniel said, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. That was the kingdom Christ came preaching, the Bible says. His very message was this. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Bible indicates in the book of Mark this statement. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After having healed many and you and I would be of the same mindset, we'd find all of our sick friends, neighbors, relatives and bring them to Christ. And when he was out early praying, his disciples found him and said, man, everybody's looking for you. He said, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Preach what? Preach the kingdom. So we understand that as we look at the life of Christ, we could describe it in this way. It was an invasion. An invasion. It certainly was of the most important type. It wasn't with guns or tanks or planes. It wasn't with soldiers like we would think all the other invasions in history were about. It was quite the different type of an invasion. He was a king nonetheless, though outwardly by many thought to be something far less than a king, a pauper or a liar at best. But as... His enemies sought to take his words and his deeds and turn them to something that would cause confusion among the multitudes. Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house. You accuse me of casting out demons by Beelzebub. He explained it this way. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So for 40 days, having not eaten, he faced his adversary in the wilderness, not like Adam in the place of perfection, and he refused every temptation. You see, the king was on a mission. 
And he would not be thwarted by anything. And though he didn't appear to be to many a king, certainly to the host of heaven, he was the king. And to the devils in hell, they knew who he was. He would cast them out and not let them speak. We know who you are. You are the Son of God. You see the question for us this morning. Is our relationship in light of this kingdom, knowing that Christ himself is that stone cut out by no human hand? He's the one that came and would crush the nations. And 1 Corinthians 15 says he must rule until he's put all authority under his feet. His last enemy will be death, and then he'll take the kingdom and give it to his father. You see, that's what's going on right now in all of the world. And that's why we have mission month and a half. Because you see, Christ is on a mission. And the great reality is he's called us to simply be a witness, hasn't he? He's not asked you to pick up a gun. He's told you to take out your tongue and use it as a voice for his cause. Speak about him clearly and carefully and continually. So as we see in these verses, the two preceding it were, uh, I guess, metaphors of the kingdom. So you've got to shape this particular parable and put it in its place. Christ came preaching the kingdom. Everything that he says in light of this work that he came to accomplish. He's a king. He's come to establish his kingdom. And so these parables give us understanding about this particular kingdom. It's like a mustard seed. It looked in so many ways insignificant when put in the ground. It's like a little leaven. Far less than the flour it was to cause to rise, but nonetheless it would do its work in an unseemly way. It would accomplish its end and its goal. This little seed would spring and grow to be something far greater than it appeared to be initially when it was sown. So Christ would describe this kingdom in this way. He even taught his disciples and others to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first this kingdom in your life. Boy, this matter of the kingdom was a big deal, you see. And so this morning what we want to do in five considerations is look at this text in light of the way in which Christ has come to establish this kingdom. My question to you is in what relationship do you stand to this kingdom? That's the question. You see, in every war battle, in every invasion, you got a question to answer. How many of you have seen The Patriot? Every man in here, I think uh, Nathan Ladd used to say, that movie needs to be seen by every man once a year. You know, those who had to ask, answer and ask the question, what side am I going to be on? What side am I going to be on? That's the question that Christ continually put before those whom he walked. What side are you going to be on? So this morning, the first thing I want to consider from this text is the crowd. 
And my, my, do we know about crowds in our day? We see them every night on the news, don't we? All kinds of crowds. Some of them are six foot tall. Some of them are five footers. Some of them are five foot six, and there's a few four footers, and some of them are six foot five. Some of them are thin, and some of them are heavy. Some of them are just stocky. Some, like me, are bald. Others, like some of you, have hair. A few have beards and mustache. Some are rich. Some are poor. Some are middle class. Some are educated and uneducated. Some are ministers. Some are tax collectors. Some are doctors. Some are lawyers. Some are farmers. Some are teachers. Some are fishermen. Others are housewives. Some are teenagers. They're skin tones of every type. Some are Sadducees, they were the liberals of the day. Some are Pharisees, they were conservative. You see, but that tells us little of the crowds, doesn't it? That doesn't really tell us about the crowds. Because these things weren't the defining factors of those who followed Christ. What does tell us about the crowd? You see, although these characteristics mean the most to many in our world today, and even then, they mean little to God, the Bible says. But what really did the crowd look like? What really did God see? What did He see in that crowd? Well, we're gonna, I'm going to lay out some things that characterize the crowds that followed Christ. And it's going to be easy for you and I to sit back and say, well, I don't want to be that one, and I... It's not what you want to be, it's what you are in light of these people in this crowd, right? There were the haters. You know, these folks, if we were there in those days, might say they had some justification for hating Christ. You'd say, why? Well, he called them a viper. If somebody called you a viper, you wouldn't like him, would you? They called him a... He, they were called vipers. Some of them were called whitewashed tombs. He called them greedy. How'd you like to be called greedy in front of your friends or family? I bet you'd think a lot of the fellow that called you greedy. He even called them sons of the devil. Their goal was to kill him. There were others in the crowd that we could call debaters. Man, they were that group, you know. They didn't necessarily like him at all, but they knew how to get on top of him. They'd ask him a question he couldn't answer. They'd trick him. You ever see that going on today? I'm going to ask you a question you can by no means escape. Then I got you. And that was the group that Christ had to stand against. Those who would debate and try to call into question. They asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Boy, they thought they had him. What about the man who married this woman and all of her husbands die? Who's she gonna, whose wife's she going to be in heaven? On and on they went trying to trap him because they felt like this, like some of us. If I can ask you a question you can't answer, I feel like I'm smarter than you. And if they felt like they were smarter than Jesus, they could avoid the real question about the kingdom. Obviously, they were never successful. But there were these one group that today's become a greatly important group called the undecideds. Right? You've heard that. Has anybody heard that term? The great undecided. That's what 
the Republican and the Democrat are after, that undecided group. Well, there were many of those in the crowd that watched Christ. They admired his work and words, but, you know, his credentials weren't much. His education and where he came from, yeah, kind of sketchy from Nazareth. His followers, they were the deplorables at best. Fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and the like. My, my, did they define him as a leader? If so, I don't know about that. Then there was the manipulated. They just wanted to get along. Why such a fuss? You know, those folks who have that attitude that, you know, really, I don't know. I can't really make a decision. I... And everything that's on the evening news turns them one way and the other. They heard on the evening news that Jesus didn't do anything but cause problems. Everywhere he goes, he creates a stir. He's very disrespectful in some of the things he says to the leadership of our nation. And you know, we don't even really know who his dad is. so they were able to lay him aside because of the words of another. And then there's a curious, you know, the guy that chases the fire truck. Who, who was in there like that? Man, every time I was a kid, I heard a fire truck. I said, Mom, I'm going to go see where that's at. She'd get tired of that. You want to chase the fire truck, something exciting. You know, you're always curious. You see something going on. You hear a piece of equipment down the street, and you go and look for it. My neighbors came down the other day. I love that. You know those kind, they're just simply curious. There's curiosity in a good way. But these I'm talking about are just simply curious. They're just going to give him a pay because he is creating such a stir. You know, it is kind of unusual to see somebody raise somebody from the dead. That's pretty unique. It's kind of like the guy in the carnival with his arms that are eight foot long, right? And you want to go see him. No, it's not like that at all, is it? Then there's the unconcerned. They really don't care. They just like being around the crowd, right? Well, man, I'm all for a crowd. What are we here for? Oh, well, this guy's up here, you know. It, we're all, we don't, really don't know either. They're just unconcerned, basically, but the crowd interests them. They don't have any real interest outside of that. And then there are those who are sincere, like the little woman who had an issue of blood. Her thought was, irregardless of the crowd, I've got to touch the hem of his garment. You see, there was a little Syrophoenician woman whose little daughter laid bound by the devil and she said, I don't care what it takes, i got to get to him. And when he looked at her and said, I can't give what's preserved for Israel or my children to the dogs, call her a dog. She wasn't laid aside nor offended by that word. She just simply said in faith, yes, Lord. But the little dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Those are the sincere folks who are pursuing him. So we see in this group all of these folks which have different motives for being around or with or coming to see Christ. Where are you? That's the real question, isn't it? Where are we this morning? Which group most identifies not the way you look, but the way you think? That's so important. Now next, with the crowds gathered, consider the question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now what, the first thing we've got to ask, why did this guy ask this question? 
You know, before you ever answer a question, you want to know the motive of the guy that asked it, right? You remember the question that was asked to Jesus? By what authority do you do these things? Jesus said, let me ask you a question first. The baptism of John the Baptist, was it from heaven or from men? They knew if they said it was from heaven, Jesus was going to say, then why didn't you get baptized by John? If they said from men, they feared the people because they respected John. They said, well, we can't answer that. He said, well, let me tell you something. I'm not going to answer your question either. Wow, what a statement. So first we ask, why did this guy ask the question? And really, in the Scripture, I can't say exactly if he was genuine or sincere or he was trying to bring Christ into a place where he could use it against him. I'm not so certain of that. Well, we know many of his adversaries, as we considered earlier, tried to trick him with questions. But this might have been a genuine question. Because he might have heard Christ teach or heard tell of Christ saying something like this. Straight is the gate, narrows the way that leadeth to righteousness, and few be there that find it. He might have even seen the scene in John chapter 6 and verse 66, when after Christ had taught some hard things, he looked and many of his disciples left him. Even to the degree that he looked at his own disciples and said, Will you leave too? Maybe this man saw that and thought, only a few is going to follow him. Maybe it was a Jewish man who they themselves believed they would actually be the only ones in heaven. Maybe they were asking him, Lord, are you going to agree with the spiritual leaders of the day that only the Jews accept those nasty tax collectors and those real vile sinners? All the other Jews are going to be in, right? Maybe he was asking it that way. It's a popular question today, isn't it? Especially to those who believe in such a thing as election. Well, how many is going to be there? You see, the attitude in which we ask it is really important. Isn't it amazing he doesn't even answer the man's question? You see, the reality today is that's not the question to ask. How many are there going to be? Are there only a few? You see, that's what in the end Peter asked Jesus. Well, if I'm going to do this, what about him? Isn't that what your kids say? You're going to spank me? What about her? She's the one that was making the face at me. What about her? You see, the question isn't that at all. Our concern is not to be curious about how many, but the question should be, how can I be in the kingdom? Am I here to trick him with a question, hate him because he's exposed me, unconcerned because the kingdom I'm presently a part of, I kind of like? Or I'm here to soothe my conscience and say, you know, there's only going to be a few anyway and I'm not going to... It's just too hard. I'm going to walk on away and live out my own life in my own way like Linda tried to do. But God made her willing in the day of His power. Aren't you glad that's the God we serve? 
So we see then the question. And we see that the question asked wasn't really the most appropriate one. How can I enter the kingdom should have been the question. Now consider in his answer the invitation. Some would say of our church, you guys don't give an invitation. You don't sing just as I am six times. Yeah, but brother and sister, we invite you continually to Christ. We want you to come to Christ. And this is the invitation Christ gave. It's the invitation we give continually. It's the word spoken by our Savior. And it ought to grip our hearts and be the word spoken by us to our children, to our neighbors, to our parents, to our co-workers. Here's his answer. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Wow. This man came asking a simple math question. How many? He left with a philosophical challenge. Strive to enter the door. He might have said, I didn't want to take philosophy. I'm just interested in math. Two plus two is what? When one frightful morning you wake up in hell. Never will God be to blame. Never. You can't say with this man, well, there was only going to be a few, so I wasn't really concerned about it. You see, the reality of this is this morning, if you find yourself in the end, knocking at the door with the others, it's because you rejected his invitation. Come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He came and rejected and refused to break the broken reed or to snuff out the embering stick. He was gracious in all of his words, perfect in all of his deeds, and there was nothing found in him that was vile. The devil had nothing in him. There was nothing but grace and truth. If you dissected him, there was one thing, grace and truth. You hear the invitation from the lips of Christ to this man, irregardless of which category he fit. The crowd as a whole strive to enter through the narrow door. You see the fact that there is even a door. It's most amazing, isn't it? I remember tell of the fire that happened in Lexington. Some of you remember that fire that night in that fateful nightclub. What a horrible thing. The doors in the back had been locked. I think just simply to keep people out who didn't want to get, who would try to get in there without paying their cover charge. And it caught fire. There's only one door. It was a front. Many, many people died. But I remember a tale of one man who was a big, strong man, had a little bit of wife. He got there and he realized one thing. They both weren't getting out. It was a fight. They weren't getting out. 
So he grabbed her and he threw her as far as he could toward the door. She got out. And he was right. He didn't. Friend, there's a door. And whether you know it or not, the building you're in is burning. This kingdom, the Bible says, will be destroyed. Every kingdom of the world will be destroyed. It's coming. What Nebuchadnezzar saw was right and fear was right to grip his heart. His kingdom, though it stood in a powerful way, was going to be destroyed like every other kingdom that rises and falls. Friend, never place your hope in an earthly kingdom. Appreciate the one you're a part of, but never place your confidence in it. It, like all the others, will come to an end. This stone will destroy it, and it will set up a mountain that will never be moved. That's Christ and His work and His kingdom. fact that there is even a door for all of us. We, like Linda, hated these things. There's not a one of you said here that didn't. Unless you call the Bible a liar, then you know and I know that we, like every other, hated the fact that there was this door. We, we didn't want to go into the door. We loved what we were doing. But note, in this particular word, the level of effort is clear. You want other things. You kind of like this world. That's the struggle. The door's there. You might be like some I know. You might make a statement like that. You know, I don't like to sweat. What does that mean? I don't like to work hard. I like things kind of easy. I like things kind of easy. You know, it, if you call me to work, it's got to be 65 degrees, overcast day, and it can't be an exertion kind of thing. I'll come to work for you. <laughs> wow, that's going to be hard. You see, sin so satisfies our hearts and leaves us slothful to pursue the kingdom. Why is it that sinners head away from that door? Why is it they reject and refuse? Why is it they keep putting it off? Why is it they hear and have sat on the pews of this church day after day and yet they leave and they leave and they leave? It's because the sin that so easily besets us, that blinds us from our real need, and the devil holds his hands over our eyes. And though the, dare, the door is there and the invitation is clear, we reject it time and time again. It's not that we disagree so much so. Or even that we would say, oh, it doesn't even exist. For the most part, we're just simply slothful. Sadly, many see the folks in the world like this, so they kind of help the door get wider, called an easy believism. I do believe this verse dashes that to pieces, you see, on the rocks of biblical truth. We tell folks, well, it don't really matter. Just come on in. Get up here and pray a prayer. And you never see them again. There's no pursuit. Christ. Friend, don't. Fool yourself in thinking that Christ changed the way he invited folks 
just because some preacher led you to think that. I'm not free to do that. If Christ said strive, I can't say anything different. I'm bound by His Word to say and invite you to the kingdom in the same way He invited the multitude into the kingdom. My invitation can be no different. No. Now let's consider together the door. Down at the lake, there's this A-frame. Kim and I drive out doors that wide. So, wow, I'd have to turn sideways to get into that one. Now I don't know if I could get in it sideways. It's a narrow door. I like three-foot doors, don't you? It's a narrow door. And so this word used here is narrow for a purpose. You know, isn't that odd? You would think, well, Christ, he's making the invitation. That thing's going to be wide and broad and big. That's what at times maybe we would consider. So we have to ask the question, Christ, full of grace and mercy, his goal is save sinners. Lord, why did you make the door narrow? I'd love to go to the guy in the A-frame and say, Hey, man, why did you make that thing 18 inches wide? I'd love to know why. And that's the question we ought to ask right here. Lord, why did you say the door is narrow? If you made it a little wider, more could come. Or could they? You see, it almost has the indication that this narrow door naturally would limit, you know, for instance, one person at a time goes through. This door limits what you're going to be able to take with you. Truly, that's right. You know, but I believe as we look at the narrowness of this door, it defines not merely what you can take but I think more clearly it defines what you must think or believe. You you see, I think the narrowness of the door indicates the importance of what the truth is that we've embraced. You see, there are multitudes in the world and those that call themselves ministers of the gospel that would say, you know, in the end, well, you know, really, nobody's going to be lost. Everybody makes it in the end. You've heard that teaching. It's called universalism. The Unitarian Church believes that. There's others who preach, well, if you just pray this prayer of faith, you're going to make it. Man, I've seen in my life multitudes of times where I sat uncomfortable in the pew of a church and heard a preacher make statements that I thought, my, my. How many folks will be secured for hell and comfort? When we look at this invitation, we can't but think Christ said the door was narrow for a reason. What is it that makes this door so narrow? There is one king and you ain't it. 
There is one worship, and it's not to you or me. There's one glory to share, and it's not ours, it's His. You see, it might be for the multitudes a shame to call their king the one that died on a cross and shed His blood. For those who've embraced the life of Christ, not only is it not shame, it's our very life. And though the world looks at Him and defines Him in foolish ways, we look at Him as who He is. He left heaven and came to earth. Born in a manger. Born of a virgin. In order that he might live a life that to many was so unsuspecting of a true king. But a king indeed he was. And you see the outward scenario doesn't lay us aside. We see it as the very plan of God. To save those that would believe. Crucified between two criminals. You mean you're going to trust somebody with the eternal destiny of your soul? Who died between two criminals at the hands of a Roman army that he couldn't even keep himself from being taken by? You see, I believe it's this that's narrow about the reality of entering the kingdom, my friend. It's this piece. What do you believe about Jesus? That's important and key and critical. Do you believe that he's king above all other? Do you long for his worship and praise among all other? Are you after his law above all other? Are you satisfied with the drink from his cup? Does the sweetness of His water satisfy your longings? When you gather around His table, do you delight in His remembrance? It's these things. You know, we can talk about everything that you can't take through the door. I don't believe, and we all understand, we can't go in worldly, right? But what it's talking about is the way we think about the King of glory. Quickly. I want to consider this, and it breaks my heart. Consider the procrastination. How many of you in there had a paper to write? And a deadline to keep? Your wife asked you to do something, said, honey, can you get that done by Monday? And you look at her and you say, honey, it's 11.15, it's still Monday, but it's almost Tuesday. We all know what procrastination is. We put off something until the last minute. Or here's the real challenge. We go beyond the deadline. I take my paper to the teacher and I'll say, here it is. He said, you know what? That's great. But today's Tuesday, son, and Monday is supposed to be turned in. So he wads it up, throws it in the trash. You see, I'm convinced that in every church and in every crowd and in every place, there are those who are distracted. They're enjoying pleasure. They're working. They're raising a family. They're going to school. They're establishing their career. They've got different things facing them continually. And I want you to notice in this particular parable, there's this reality of those who find themselves 
with these excuses that this is said of them. The number are many and notice they're still at the door, but the master has risen and shut the door. Friend, listen, there's not always going to be a day like today. Don't think there's going to be one next week. This is the point. There's not always going to be a next chance, another opportunity, another day. There's not according to this verse. One day he stands and closes the door. And all of that group of people, they then see the necessity of the door. But it's too late. The things they cared about in this world carried them away from the most important reality, that narrow door, and strive to enter it. Now what? They beat on that door. The Bible says, notice if you would, they're vigorous to say things like this. Open that door. All they should have said when the door was open, run into it. And then they said things like this. We ate with you and drank with you and you taught in our streets. We went to church. We sat on a pew. We read some of the Bible occasionally. We prayed every once in a while. We were good people. Our neighbors loved us. We were a part of a church for a little while. Etc. Etc. But I want you to know quickly God's assessment of that group of people because it's very important. You might look at them and say things like have been said about multitudes who die. You might read off the list of things that were good about them and that's, you know, we can always find something good about everybody that they did. But notice what he says of this group of people. I don't know where you come from. Man, you don't want that said about you, brother or sister. What does that mean? You're a stranger to me. That's what it means. You didn't pray and get his ear. You never invited him into your home. You never read his word to understand who he was. You just were unconcerned. A hater, a debater, whatever you felt. The reality is this group were strangers. And then he says this horrible statement, you're workers of evil. Wow. <sighs> Now their reaction is, I hope for you and for me, something that never leaves us. The Bible says when they looked, they saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. Those that Jesus said you delighted in killing and you decorate their tombs. It's those folks who are in the kingdom. You see them over there. And the Bible says when they saw them, they begin to weep and gnash their teeth. How many of your children, when they get mad, you know, sometimes they're just mad and they show you a face. Other times when they get real mad, they go, oh. Or sometimes you do that. Or sometimes your wife does that at you. They, oh. And they look over there and, oh. Oh. Kind of like when Jesus was at Nazareth and he was there in the synagogue, the very place he was born where he ought to have a witness and a respect. And he looked at him and said just a thing that sometimes somebody said, well, he shouldn't have said that. He just created a, a problem. He said, there were many widows in Israel. But God, the little one in Zarephath, a Gentile. That's where he sent Elijah. There were many lepers in Israel. But he went and healed Naaman, 
a foreigner, a Gentile. And they got so mad, they wanted to grab him and throw him over the hill. That's the description here. What else did they see? The very thing they despised most from the east and the west and the north and the south. The very reason we're having this week and or month and a half of meetings, missions, people from North Africa, people from Europe, people from all over the globe coming into the kingdom. And notice what they're doing, reclining at table with the king of glory. And what was happening to this group? They were cast out, the Bible said. Hear me please this morning. Don't make this about some foreign and distant land, some foreign and distant people. This is about us. This is about you and your children. This is about your neighbors and others. I'm telling you, when the end comes, it's going to be no pretty sight. The Bible used these words. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. How else can it bring to us such a picture of the vivid reality of putting off the king of the kingdom, not striving to enter the narrow door, taking up the pleasures of the world? And let me close with this statement. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And how can we interpret that verse? The things that appear now. What he means. Not the things that, are, that will appear then. Hear me with that. You see, if anybody said someone would make it to the kingdom, who would it have been? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were spiritually equipped and credentialed. Who did Jesus not name in that group? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. Those from the east, the west, the north, and the south. That's you, brother and sister, who've trusted the king, who've entered the narrow door. You're going to recline a table with him. If you're here and you've trusted him, I want this morning you delight in that reality as we sing this song. Rejoice that you're in his kingdom. Continue his pursuit. Follow him all the way to glory. Everything he does is good. All that he has intent for you is good. Everything he's about is good. Never will you give up anything that you won't receive multitudes of things in return. Houses and lands and eternal life. Let's pray together, brother and sister. Oh, God. We beg you for those that have procrastinated that they procrastinate no longer. Lord, those of us who are in the kingdom, help us to rejoice at this great reality. Like our sister Linda, you wouldn't let us go even when we wanted to. Save our children, we beg you, Lord. Save those who've heard the gospel here many times and are satisfied with something less than the narrow door with something less than striving to enter. God, we plead with you. We beg you, Lord, let not Satan win a victory in any heart in this room. We pray for the sake of our great King. In his name we ask it. Amen.